Hey creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day. back to another episode of TGI Crime Day. I am so glad you're joining me today. Um, here's your top of the episode reminder to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you're listening and come join the Creep Squad over on my Instagram. You can follow along at TGI Crime Day. Uh, right now we're small enough that I can keep track of all of the DMs and things, so um, I love when you message me over there and let me know what you think of the episodes and also sending me your um, home time, home time? hometown true crime stories as well as case suggestions. Um, I always love hearing from you when you listen and sharing the episodes is really really helpful and very supportive to the podcast so thank you for doing that. Um, I hope to bring you a lot of great future episodes and I really hope that they get better and better uh, because so far I've really loved doing the podcast. So today's case is another Utah-based case. Uh, For those of you who don't know, I live in Utah, so mostly my friends are sending in suggestions right now. Um, So I get a lot of Utah case suggestions, and this one is insane. So thank you to my friend Darian. I think it was Darian. Oh no, I just had a panic attack. I think it was Darian. Thank you, Darian, for recommending this case. Um, Here's your usual trigger warning. If you don't want to hear horrible things, don't listen to true crime. This case has everything. Karate studios, big swords, a weird cult you've probably never heard of, and of course, murder. Today I am telling you the story of the family of David Colt and the horrible, awful murders committed because of it. Charles Bruce Longo was born in Yonkers, New York on November 9th, 1938. In his childhood, he went by the name Bruce, which is what I will be calling him for the first portion of this story. Bruce grew up in a large colonial-style home with loving parents. His dad was a prominent doctor, and they were a well-respected family in their community. One of the Longo neighbors described Bruce by saying, quote, he commanded your attention in everything he did, and he was striking, end quote. Bruce graduated from Gordon High School in 1955 and joined the U.S. Marine Corps. This is where he first learned of the LDS, or Mormon, church. When he returned to Yonkers in 1958, he converted to the LDS church and became very intensely, intensely invested. Bruce became a Boy Scout leader at his local church, and one of the other members said that he was, quote, a strong influence on the young people, end quote. In March of 1960, Bruce decided that he would serve an LDS mission. For those of you who are not familiar, the LDS church sends young men and women on um, missions to spread the word of their church. Girls serve a year and a half mission, and boys serve a two full year mission. Bruce was sent to Uruguay for his mission. While he was in Uruguay, uh, he became ever more obsessed with his religious beliefs, and the other missionaries he served with said he practically memorized the Book of Mormon, red flag always, and described him as a very forceful missionary. He ended up being released early in 1961 after serving only 11 months of what was supposed to be a full two-year mission. The church leaders decided it would be best for him to go home after he claimed to be hearing voices and having visions another red flag, and saying he was going to become an apostle of the church. One of his friends says that he remembers Bruce spending some time in the hospital for, quote, some type of psychiatric care. He wasn't in that care long because he moved to Utah in the fall of 1961 to attend Brigham Young University in Provo. Uh, BYU is a religious college, and Provo is basically the Mormon slash LDS capital of the world. It's pretty intense. Um... No judgment. It's it's great. Uh, when he was attending BYU, he met a girl named Mar- Margit Margit. It's spelled M-A-R-G-I-T. It's Swedish. I think it's Margit. Oh my gosh, I'm the worst. 
I tried to look it up. I really tried to do my research on how to say that name. I'm sorry. I tried. Margit? Margit Erickson. Bruce and Margit got married in November of 1961. Uh, but you might be saying, but Taylor, did you say December of 1961? Didn't he only start school there in Utah in the fall? How on earth would they meet and get married by December of the same year? Because it's Utah. <laughs> so things move quickly here. Uh, she should have walked down the aisle with a big old bouquet of red flags because yikes of bikes, things are about to get weird. By the time Bruce graduated college in 1965, the couple had had two children together and moved to Salt Lake City. Bruce was a, te a student teacher at the Language Training Center for LDS Missionaries. He started teaching many strange things to his classes, including telling them he'd have a revelation, red flag, uh, that he would become a key figure in the LDS church. Shortly after his revelation, he was excommunicated from the church, which basically just means that they kicked him out. Um, on his excommunication, Bruce demanded that the church pay him money that church members had donated through tithing, saying that it was rightfully his because he was the true prophet. When he was kicked out of the church, he had a few people who followed him, believing in his revelations, and this is where the cult essentially began. Bruce believed he was a descendant of the biblical David, so he changed his name to Emmanuel David, and his wife changed her name to Rebecca David. I will be calling them um, Emmanuel and Rebecca moving forward. David became fanatical about his beliefs, and he told people, uh, especially his followers, that he was God, Jesus, and the Holy Ghost. All three. Just pick one. Uh, he regularly quoted scripture, especially from the book of Revelations, which is always troubling when people quote scriptures at you just in regular daily life. No, thank you. In Revelations 13, 4, it talks about a dragon and a beast, and there is a power that can control the dragon and take it to war against the beast. I assume this was more of a metaphor, but Emmanuel took it very seriously, and he believed that he was the power that could make war with the dragon of Revelations. It was kind of confusing when I read all of that, but essentially that was his belief system. He gained a group of 13 followers who um, loved everything he had to say, and uh, they all believed that he was the Messiah. Like many cult leaders, Emmanuel lived off of his followers' money. They gave Emmanuel all of their money, some of them even selling their businesses and possessions to support his uh, cult, and the members all changed their last names to David, and they called themselves the family of David. One of the cult members actually owned a knife factory and made Emmanuel a long sword that he used to carry around when they lived in the city of Manti. Um, he would uh, carry it around the city and make people really nervous with it and threaten to, quote, lop off thousands of heads, end quote, if the need came up. Nope, don't like that. By 1971, the cult had a couple dozen followers, and some of the cult members were sent to different parts of the country to tell other people about the family of David. Um, Emmanuel also separated men from their wives and children while they went to spread the word. I hate that. I don't understand why cult leaders do that. I assume it's just to, like, isolate people. I don't know. Emmanuel also began having uh, revelations that his followers were actually archangels put on this earth to serve him. He had all the members change their names to more biblical-sounding names, and um, Emmanuel and his followers would hold protests outside of the LDS temple, but there was never any violence or arrests, even though um, usually when he was out with his followers, police would kind of keep a close eye. From what I read, Emmanuel was a very big guy. I think he was over six feet tall, and he was like 300 pounds. They said that he had long hair that he wore in a braid and a big beard, so he probably looked pretty intimidating. So um, I think they had him, I mean, especially, you know, if he's stomping back and forth with a sword threatening to lop off people's heads uh they had people keeping an eye on him but it never turned violent they were never like 
outraged or anything like that. It seems to be very peaceful. Um, in 1974, Emmanuel sent some of his followers to Spokane, Washington to open a karate studio. Yes, a karate studio, you know, because how every good cult has their own karate studio. Hashtag just culty things. <laughs> anyway, some of the members were running the karate studio and sending all the money to support Emmanuel and his family of seven, who were now, yes, you heard me, family of seven, uh, were now living in a red lion inn in Missoula, Montana. Um, eventually, Emmanuel had another revelation that the federal government was going to collapse. Was he wrong? Uh, but don't worry. Emmanuel promised to pick up the pieces of the Republic and become the new leader of the country. Just like that. Super easy peasy. He instructed his archangels in Spokane to sell the karate studio and move to Washington, D.C. to wait for the collapse of the government. Emmanuel um, packed up his family and moved back to Utah, leaving behind a hotel bill of $6,000. And to put that into perspective, that is about $40,000 in... $40,250 was the number in today's money. So he just left this hotel bill of 40 grand and just came on back to Utah. While Emmanuel was parading around spending everyone else's hard-earned karate studio money, his three archangels were living on the streets in Washington, D.C. At first, their faith was not shooketh, as they slept on park benches while Emmanuel and his family stayed in $100 per day hotel rooms, um, roughly 760 no, $670 in today's money. Can you believe the inflation? It's a horror story. One of the archangels, happy Halloween, one of the archangels did decide that he was tired of living in his current situation, so he got a job at a lumberyard, saved up enough money to buy a motorcycle, and then he drove to Albuquerque, New Mexico, where he opened his own karate studio and started going by his original name. Another archangel also got tired of living on the streets in D.C. and flew home to Scandinavia to be a carpenter, but he still regularly sent money to Emmanuel and still believed very strongly in the family of David. He just wanted to do it in Scandinavia. Um, about a year after living in D.C., the remaining archangels got a call one day from Emmanuel saying that he had found the legendary tablets that were given to the founder of the Mormon church, Joseph Smith. And this may come as a shock, but when they returned to Utah, Emmanuel did not have the tablets. In fact, he told the three men that he was the tablets. This red flag was enough to lose Emmanuel a few followers, but most people still seem to be on board. In fact, by 1977, the remaining members of the family of David began fundraising efforts to uh, keep supporting Emmanuel's expensive taste in hotel living. It was like sweet life of Zach and Cody up in here. Unfortunately for these members, uh, the FBI had caught on to some of their, quote, fundraising. It was fraud. Uh, <laughs> two of the members were then charged with wire fraud and put in jail. From what I read, they would basically just come up with, it would be like if, okay, if it was today's times and someone made a GoFundMe being like, help, my family went through this horrible tragedy, we need money, please donate, except like your family member had not gone through anything, that was essentially what they were doing to make their money to continue supporting David's hotel lavish lifestyle. On July 31st, 1978, the body of Emmanuel David was found in a borrowed truck that was parked in Immigration Canyon. Police found that he had used a hose to fill the truck with carbon monoxide, which led to his death. There was no suicide note, and Emmanuel hadn't taken anything of importance with him when he drove up the canyon that day. Police later speculated that they felt he committed suicide to get out of trouble with the law. The FBI had been looking into Emmanuel for the same things that some of his followers were arrested for, wire fraud and tax evasion, that sort of thing. When Rebecca was told about her husband's death, she said that she didn't know how they were going to pay for his funeral or make ends meet without him. Some of his followers said that the reason he committed suicide was because he believed he was going to be resurrected on August 6, 1978. 
He told them that this date was the anniversary of a, quote, religious experience that he'd had on his mission, and he said that there would be, quote, an event of earth-shaking proportions felt in Utah, especially Salt Lake City. Emmanuel's death would lead to a horrendous event a few days later. Okay, as you know, I don't give trigger warnings for every single specific thing in this podcast, but I am going to warn you now. This is your big neon sign that things are about to get very upsetting. In July of 1978, the David family was living in a suite on the 11th floor of the International Dune Hotel in Salt Lake City. The children had been homeschooled and spent all their time at the hotel. There were seven kids now, and then David, I mean Emmanuel and Rebecca, living in this hotel suite at this time. Uh, The hotel workers described the kids as silent and very obedient. They never ran around or played in the hotel's pool, so I guess it wasn't super duper sweet life of Zach and Cody. On August 3rd, 1978, Rebecca David took her seven children, ages between 5 and 15, out onto the balcony of their 11th floor suite. One by one, the children jumped or were pushed from the balcony. Bystanders who saw this unfold said that at first they thought there was a horrible accident and they looked up uh, because they saw someone fall from the balcony and land on a nearby roof. Everyone uh, began looking up trying to figure out what was going on when another person fell and then another and so on. I can't even imagine the shock and horror that would put you through as a witness. Uh, I am also very glad that this didn't take place at the time of camera phones because I can't even imagine the amount of videos that would be circulating. You know, technology is not always super great. Um, Witnesses said that everyone on the street was screaming for Rebecca to take the kids back inside, yelling for her to stop. But eventually, after watching these six kids fall from the balcony, the crowd began screaming for Rebecca to jump, and she did. Rebecca and four of her children died on impact, while two of the children died later at the hospital, and one girl survived the fall. Rachel David, who was 15 years old, survived the fall. Rachel was taken to a nearby LDS hospital and had many surgeries and remained in a coma for a few months. Eventually, she did wake up, but she had to deal with severe medical issues, including being confined permanently to a wheelchair. I couldn't find a ton of information on what happened to Rachel after she left the hospital, but there was an article that talked about how difficult it was to keep the media away from her while she was in the hospital, so I guess I'm actually really glad that there's not a ton of info about her out there. Uh, She was only 15 and went through the most horrendous traumatic thing I can't even imagine. Um, I did read that she spent some time in foster care, but eventually she went to live with family members. Unfortunately, those family members were still followers and believers of the family of David. When the article said family members, I wasn't sure if they meant her actual family or the family of David, but it doesn't really matter because whichever they were, they didn't seem to have any kind of an issue with the decisions made by Emmanuel or Rebecca and were still, like, totally committed cult members. Rachel did an interview in 1993, 15 years after surviving that horrible day. In the interview, she said, quote, I remember my father said he will be back. I know he will. He never lies. Oh, it's just so sad. Okay. I also read that she had attempted suicide multiple times trying to follow her family's orders. There's not much more info on Rachel... Uh, In the most recent interview of one of the cult members from 2008, they said that she is living in a care facility in Idaho. They didn't say what type of care facility. I'm not really sure, but um, I don't want to go on like a personal opinion rant, so I'm just going to leave it at this. Rachel's side of the story is one of the most upsetting and heartbreaking things for me. Um, If you have thoughts or opinions, please go discuss them with me over on Instagram, but be respectful. Um, I know it's hard in this situation because you're like, what in the world is going on? But 
Uh, we don't do victim blaming or shaming around here. So keep that in mind, but let's discuss over on Instagram. Okay, moving on. After the tragedy in 1978, there were still a few members of the family of David who believed wholeheartedly in all his ideas. The most recent article that I could find was from 2008, and one of the believers, uh, Matthias David, talked about his opinion of these horrific deaths. He said, quote, this is angering, so here we go, <laughs> quote, they couldn't live without him. Can you imagine what kind of faith it would take for a whole family to leap from the 11th floor of a hotel? Can you imagine what kind of faith that would take, question mark, uh, end quote? In my opinion, my opinion, <laughs> that's not faith, that's brainwashing, and I find it really troubling that he would have that kind of a stance on what happened. These kids were between 5 and 15. They did not have faith. They were forced. I don't, I, uh, uh, not an opinions podcast. I'm just going to stop. I'm going to just, let's just move on. Um, so back in 2008, Matthias had been sending letters to the leaders of the LDS church, basically proclaiming that Emmanuel was God and that they needed to prepare for his return. He also had a simple solution for the, uh, for the people who were considered Emmanuel's enemies. He said, quote, I think Mount Tipponogos is going to land on Manti. It will be picked up and dropped on Manti, end quote. So, we'll just take all of his opinions with a grain of salt. The family of David was a little tiny cult to begin with, but there are still a few followers out there waiting for his return. That was an article from 2008, but I assume they're still doing well. Wishing them well. Ever happiness to them all. Okay, <laughs> moving on. Okay, we have reached the end of today's main story, but don't leave yet. Since today was a little bit shorter of a case, um, I decided to share a couple of emails that were sent in to me. Uh, I've decided to call these listener files, and I hope eventually we can get to a point where we can do an entire episode dedicated just to listener emails. So listen to these ones, get a feel for how it's done, and then send me all your stories. Ghost stories, hometown murder stories, um, urban legends, anything that you want to include. Um, I've got a couple for you today that are really good. One of them is a quick ghost story, and then one of them is a possible Zodiac connection. So let's get into those. The first email, um, and also shout out Cammie, because you're the first person who ever emailed me on my uh, TGI Crime Day email ever, so thank you. Uh, the first email was sent by Cammie, and she said, Hey, so this is short but creepy. When my husband and I were first married, we lived in a basement apartment. One day I was leaving to go to work when I saw an old lady sitting on the couch by the window upstairs. I thought, oh cute, Jan's mom's here for a visit. Later that night, Jan texted me and said, in case you need anything, I just wanted to let you know we won't be home for a few days. My mom passed away today and we're helping my dad take care of things. I just got weird arm chills and I've read that a couple of times already and it makes me get weird chills every time. So, um... After the after that last sentence, Cammy put three of those like smiley faces that have those really wide eyes, like they're smiling but they're really nervous about it. And then she said, "P.S. Yay for spooky season! Hell yeah, yay for spooky season!" Okay, this next one is from a friend who shall remain anonymous, but this story is crazy. Here we go. Um, she said, "About twenty years ago, I had a neighbor who was a quiet older man. He was nice enough, but a little different." My family was friendly with him and his wife, who he married later in life, and one day he asked my dad if he could read a book that he'd been writing about the Zodiac Killer and give him feedback. My neighbor had been a cop in Northern California in the 1960s and 70s in the area where the Zodiac Killer had been active. It was a very long book and apparently fairly boring. Each chapter was written from the point of view of a policeman investigating the Zodiac cases. My dad said it was like reading a textbook. Informative, but the writing was bland and matter-of-fact without much detail. 
As he read on, he stumbled across a chapter which, with no explanation, switched from first person, from the first-person voice of the cop to a first-person point of view of the murderer. It seemed to be written by a completely different person and was a detailed account of the murder of a young couple. Ugh, uh, it freaks me out. Okay. It was written with a disturbing amount of passion and a completely different tone than the rest of the book. It had descriptions and details of a specific incident that were far beyond what could be found in news or police reports. The chapter strongly described, or sorry, the chapter described strong sexually charged feelings as he wrote about killing the woman. It was not the writing of any normal person. My dad was thoroughly disgusted and a little terrified and couldn't read the rest of the book. Out of curiosity, he peeked ahead at some of the later chapters to see if the disturbing point of view of the murderer continued or if the change in voice was explained, but nope. After that heinous, passionate chapter, it switched right back to the passionless writing of northern of the Northern Carolina, sorry, of the Northern California policeman. He gave the book back to my neighbor, told him it was interesting, and we didn't live next door to him much longer. My dad my dad said it seemed almost as if most of the book was just filler and that the chapter with the murder was the only thing the writer cared about. He then did some research on serial killers, copycats of the Zodiac Killer, the Zodiac Killings, etc. There was suspicion that the Zodiac Killer was involved with law enforcement. They do think that there were at one point copycat killings. Um, serial killers sometimes want to get things off their chest and find strange ways to confess things as they get older. Books, letters, etc. The book lined up very well with his research. Was my neighbor the Zodiac Killer? Was he a copycat? Did he some, commit some other murder described his feelings in this book? Perhaps he was just a man with a very deranged and violent fetishes. In any case, my dad didn't want his young family living next door to him. Gives me the creeps. Um, yeah, it gives me the creeps, too. Also, there was totally, uh, like, that connection where they thought that maybe it was someone who was, like, in law enforcement that was involved in the killings, which we know from all of the Golden State Killer drama that there are police officers who do these things and get away with it and go unnoticed and undetected for years. So that's so spooky and so weird. Um, both of those listener files were amazing. I love the way that you wrote both of those. Um, if you guys want to submit your listener files emails, it's as simple as that. Write me a story. I'll read it here. It'll be great. Uh, just make sure that you include all of the details and let me know all of the things. Um, but I would love to have more of those listener emails. It's very fun. All right, creeps, we have reached the end of this week's episode, and just so you know, I call you creeps as a term of endearment. I mean it as, like, we're like, a, you know, we're the creep squad. We love all things spooky, creepy, and you can talk about them here because this is a safe space where no one's going to judge you for being obsessed with the darker things in life. We're not obsessed with the dark things. We're just, it's the psychology, but you know, you know why you're here. We all know why we're here. Okay, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I really hope that you liked it. Um, if you did, make sure that you subscribe and go over to Instagram so we can discuss. Send me your recommendations, send me your listener files, and I will talk to you guys next week. Bye!